please turn to James chapter 1. The book of James is immediately after Hebrews. In the 19th century, Priscilla J. Owens wrote this refrain to her hymn, We Have an Anchor. I remember singing this growing up in the Nazarene church. The refrain says, We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. That sums up the point of the New Testament letter called James. Written by James the Just, as he was called the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, likely around 48 A.D. James apparently didn't receive Jesus as his Savior in his heart and mind while Jesus was on the earth, but apparently uh, came to follow him at some point uh, very early on. And so uh, this letter is often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's filled with practical wisdom for the believer as we try to navigate our lives as Christians in the midst of all this sinfulness that's outside of us and that's inside of us. It's about many of the ways faith might be put into practice, but it's mainly about how to endure in our lives, our world, and our churches as people who have received the overwhelmingly gracious gift of God in salvation. What kind of worldview do we need to have? What kind of perspective do we need? How do we understand the relationship between our works and faith? How much do our words reveal what's going on inside of us, reveal our hearts and where our hope is fixed? What kind of attitude do we need to have towards the world and about the direction of our own lives? James reveals that our hope and the promise of the gospel or the lack thereof will come out. And so he brings us crucial wisdom from God. James uh, wrote to an audience with which it seems he was very familiar or more familiar than most. He calls them the 12 tribes in the dispersion in verse 1, which that lets us know that this may have been a predominantly Jewish Christian audience to which he wrote. We find in the letter that they, um, these believers still met in the synagogue with other Jews. He assumes in it their knowledge of their adherence to the law. Uh, but we also want to keep in mind that the 12 tribes, as they were originally categorized and labeled, haven't existed by the time Jane wrote, or James wrote since the Assyrian conquest and the exile of the 10 northern tribes way back in 722 B.C., and the two remaining tribes, of course, in the south in 587 B.C. So when you say the 12 tribes after that, the meaning takes on something else. The 12 tribes is, is more a figurative label at this point for the church as a whole, as it's restored in Jesus Christ. This is what was prophesied. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. Revelation makes this point, discusses this often as a part of the first fruits of the new creation. That now is the 12 tribes, so to speak. And so this recognizes the fact that there were Gentile Christians among this largely Jewish Christian audience as well. That Gentiles were among this dispersion, a word, the diaspora, reserved for um, the, the, um, the pushing out of the Jews from Israel. That Gentiles are looped into this as God's people due to their persecution that began in Jerusalem was also evident in Acts 15, if you remember, as the Jerusalem Council 
discussed their presence in the church, the presence of Gentiles in the church and some of the things that were happening. And James was an integral part of that discussion. But pinpointing the exact location of these recipients and where they were, that's extremely difficult. We're not really sure the exact locations or can't be too confident in what they were uh, to which he was writing. What we want to focus on are the contents of the letter and how by God's spirit, the content speaks to us as well, directly to us as people of the dispersion, if you will, way over here in Moundsville, West Virginia. The letter also gives us some insight into the social situation of the recipients to whom he was writing. We learn from verses like 1-9 and 2-5 that they were most likely, several of them, economically disadvantaged Christians. Many appear to be part of the working class poor who uh, labored in agricultural settings. We pick up some of that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. But it also seems as though there were some very wealthy uh, members in these congregations, some of them uh, wealthy enough to have had positions apparently of leadership in the synagogues. And so the ability to help determine who can enter those places. And so a lot of those problems and issues that were affecting the state of the church are the same as we have today. Uh, money speaks and people that have wealth and tend to have power with it. And that also affects a church uh, as well. And so uh, some among them could be considered genuinely rich. And yet we find in spite of that, many are suffering hardship and oppression. And also from those outside the church, not only inside the church. James's overarching concern, though, is that many of these believers were not putting their faith into practice, given the situations they were in and the lives they lived. They need help. They need wisdom to endure in everyday life as believers. And so we need to know how to endure trials of various kinds so that we will remain steadfast and sure in our faith in the salvation of our God. Let me pray and we'll look at this first part of chapter 1. Father, I pray that you would be with us tonight as we walk through this passage. God, watch over my mind and my mouth that I may preach the truth of your word for the edification and benefit of your people. Lord, I pray that everyone be able to listen honestly, to hear your word objectively as the truth that stands over and seeks to shape us, O oh God. Help us see the promise that is ours in Christ as we study this passage. We ask in his name and for his sake in us. Amen. Verses 1 through 4 here of James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers or brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, Notice here right away in verses 2 through 4, at least, the similarities of James, if you can remember, with the message of First Peter. Peter tells us that God is guarding us through faith as we go through trials of various kinds, and that we shouldn't be surprised by them. What the New Testament writers kind of come together to say is that few things threaten our faith like enduring trials threatens our faith. And yet... Nothing does more at the same time to strengthen our faith than trials. That's very interesting, isn't it? How do trials strengthen faith specifically? Why do trials strengthen faith? 
Beloved, the more we are brought to the end of ourselves and face to face with our own desperation, the more likely it is that we are going to cling to Christ or that we are going to know that's the only option we really have. We have to be made aware of how we need him and how much we need him. We don't naturally conclude that about ourselves. Consider the similarities of James with Paul in Romans 5, that suffering actually produces endurance in Christians. Doesn't it make me weaker to endure all these trials just to get pelted again and again? Usually, yes, right? Trials tend to take us out depending on their severity. But again, we won't realize that we need to be holding on to Jesus with both hands until something threatens to cut one of our hands off, right? Remember, God is not trying. This is so important. Beloved, God is not interested in giving us our best life now on the earth. That's not what God is after. That's not what He's doing in us. But to guarantee that we will live with Him for eternity. That this is temporary and transient and passing away. So, as James teaches us about these things, he says that we must count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Count what all joy? What's the antecedent of it? The testing of our faith that we experience by going through trials. In verse 2, count that experience joy. Why would we count something that is threatening our faith as joy? Because, beloved, the invitation to do so means that our God is sovereign. That He is sovereign. He knows what He's doing when He puts us in His hands, calling us to trust Him only. To see things as he sees them. Our God has the power to keep his promises. So if God says that having our faith threatened makes it stronger, you and I can believe him. We can rest in that. Spurgeon said that he had learned to kiss the wave that threw him against the rock of ages. I love that line. If if that's what the wave does, then you and I need it because we won't lean on it. We won't want to kiss it. Until we're thrown against it. Notice that word for. I mean, imagine when we think about Romans 3 that we looked at this morning and how deep the stain of sin goes. Beloved, coming to Christ, receiving Christ, isn't going to just completely change the way that we think. Now, it will over time, absolutely. But so much has to be done in us for us to be orientated towards Christ and towards the truth. We don't naturally want anything to do with it. But if what it does is throw us against the rock of ages, we need that. Notice that word for at the beginning of verse 3. Word for always tells us what the whys are, doesn't it? Count the difficulties that increase our faith as joy for this testing of our faith produces steadfastness, which means God counts steadfastness, the ability to patiently endure in trials, as something to be rejoiced over If it's possessed, if trials of various kinds produce that, then they are worth more than worth enduring with joy. And I want us to notice something, though. James says to count it as such. Consider it that. Notice that because that means we have to reckon them that way. In other words, he's not saying and the Bible does not teach to be happy when your loved one dies. Or to be joyful that you lost your job, etc., etc. That's not what this is. James does not mean 
And he's not teaching us that it's joyful to go through trials. It isn't. But that we may reckon or consider something that grants us steadfastness as an occasion to have joy, much like God counts you and I righteous based on what his son has done, rather than because we actually are what he says we are. Right? He reckons us, counts us, declares us righteous, even though you and I know better, and so does he. But he sees us through the blood and the righteousness of Christ. This is an argument for perspective. Right? Don't count it joy that you lost your loved one. That example, right? God is not saying that. He doesn't require that of us. That's silly. He's saying count it joy that the fact you went through that took you closer to him because that has the ability to draw us closer to him than other things do in a world like ours that's flipped upside down and corrupted and cursed and subjected to futility. The Christian does not act as though it's fun to go through trials. We, we don't need to act or perform, right, or deny reality at all, ever. It is horrible to go through trials, and the worse they are, the more horrible it is. The Bible isn't denying that. That's how you end up in Christian science and Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking. And This isn't positive thinking. Right? This is, this is faith in the promise of Christ and in what God has said. We are reckoning our circumstances as believers in light of what God has done for us in Christ. We are reckoning our experiences as believers in light of the promise. And so, beloved, trials here will characterize our lives in the overlap of the two ages. James says when you endure trials of various kinds, not if, right? And that's the witness of the whole New Testament. First Peter 1, 6 through 9, First Peter 4, 12 through 14. In verse 3, the ground or the reason for joy is the product of trials, right? Steadfastness is patient endurance under trials. The reason for joy is not the experience of trials. It's what trials give to us. Don't count the experience of trials as joy. The experience can be awful. But just knowing that our darkest hours are actually a tool in God's hand to get us home to Him where we will never hurt again is fuel for the weary soul. Trials test faith in verse 3. Apparently, what we learn from Scripture is that faith endures as it is tested, as it's proven to be true against other Things. So when we experience adversity or difficult circumstances, suffering of various kinds, it will threaten our belief, apparently, in the sufficiency of Christ as our Savior, as one who speaks the truth to us by His Word and His Spirit. Now, why is that? Right? That this, James is pushing us to think here. Yes, trials, the, the, the experience of them strengthens our faith or has the potential to do that, depending on our perspective. And yet it also threatens to take our faith away and to make us defect. Now, why is that the case? Why is that how trials work? It may be that our hope in God is often misdirected. And what I mean is it could be that we have hope in God for an advantage here on the earth. And so we're judging God's goodness and His sovereignty and His plan and all this based on how life is going. And when trials come in and make life harder, we doubt God. 
we question God, we're unsure of what he's doing, we think he doesn't love us, and on and on it goes, right? The trial can be that bad to endure. But it may be that the reason trials can have such a negative effect is because we're using God or hoping God to give us an easier life, a better one. Trials affect life here. That's the only place trials can do damage is here. They can't touch the promise. They can't touch the promise. God wills for his people that our hearts would be so fixed on the future that those things that threaten our joy here and now, losing things that we think we have joy in here and now, would not threaten our hope there and then. In verse 4, the full effect or ultimate result of steadfastness is our perfect completion in which we lack nothing. Well, that's amazing. That That's Christian maturity, right? It's the ability to patiently endure in trials makes a perfectly complete Christian who lacks nothing needed to endure to the end. We don't reach mature faith then or maturity by getting progressively better. We become perfectly complete and lacking in nothing when our faith in the promise of God to keep His Word is untouchable. That's maturity. That's perfection as far as that goes. That's completeness. So all we need to endure is to hope in the promise so much that suffering won't cause us to commit apostasy, to reject Christ as our Savior, to deny that that's who He is, to deny God's Word. And, and remember, so much suffering, not all of it by any means, but a lot of our suffering is simply temptation and war with sin and the flesh. That gets old, and it gets old to fall. Because because we, we as we're growing, we're taking steps forward and steps back, right? But to, to continue to struggle with sin is extremely... Difficult for a believer in his or her endurance. I, I heard a gentleman say one time, and it was a, a, a very pious answer, but I, I think he's telling the truth. I think it's it's right that it was a panel. What what would if there was anything that could make you question the existence of God? What what is it, or what would it be? And one pastor said, "The slowness of my sanctification. Right, the fact that no matter how hard I try, I I don't feel myself defeating sin and." Getting better and, 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 you know, progressively getting better. And, and I, I guarantee you, as a believer, that you're growing. You, you may not realize that, right? It's, it's like when you're little, you don't really know you're getting taller until you realize that you're taller than you were before. That's the dumbest thing I've ever said in my life, but that's, you, you know what I mean. Like, oh my goodness, I'm looking, I'm taller now. And I was talking to my daughter last night, to Sophia, and, uh, she was talking about a church that we we first planted in Newark, Ohio. This would have been, I guess, 2011. Um, she was talking about how big the church was that we met in first. There was a church that let us use their building on Sunday night. She said, that place was huge. I said, honey, you were tiny. That place is not that big. I mean, it, was, it wasn't bigger than this. It was very ornate, very beautiful inside, like a... Um, very old, you know, like the way old has beauty, but it, it wasn't that big. And to, but to her, it was like, no, 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 you just, you're bigger now. At the time when you were in there, you were this big, and so it looked massive to you. But you are growing 
the Spirit is at work in you, believer. It's, it, he promised that. He's doing that. He's producing His fruit in you. What James is pushing us to do is to not stop believing the promise. Don't stop believing what God said He is going to do. And, and don't, don't, He's going to get into wisdom here because they, they come, they're so closely related. We, we need wisdom so much. Wisdom from above. That isn't like the wisdom below, but from above. Since Paul said, if you remember, the suffering we experience now is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Now we know, when we read that in 2 Corinthians 4, that what is coming is so good and so wonderful and so complete that it, it will change. Our eternity will change our perspective on everything. Now, this all shakes us a little, doesn't it? It's a little scary sometimes to think about endurance, especially when we know trials will be so common that we ought not to be surprised by them. Right, that can be a kick in the gut. Uh, you, you know, I, I, maybe you've endured some very intense trials recently or in your life, and you think, well, certainly it can't get any worse. And the Scripture speaks like it, it could. Right? It would be better to be ready for that than that you're going to coast from here on out, right? How do we not only understand God's truth here, how do we do the word here? Right? Are we just supposed to close our eyes and try really hard to count it all joy? Is that what God has called us to do? Pick it up in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, goes right from this to wisdom. Do you see that? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Our minds cannot be divided. It's beautiful for our sanity here on earth to know when you read verses like this that God knows you and I can't make sense of this life. He knows this. He doesn't, he isn't surprised by the weakness of our faith. And he's not angry with us. He's bringing us to himself rather than berate us for this lack of wisdom that we can't do what the Bible says without questioning it and doubting if it's true, He calls us to Himself in this. It is impossible to endure as a Christian without divine wisdom from above. It's impossible. So we're invited to ask God for the wisdom to know how to think, to think this way when we undergo trials. Because you recount it all joy and you start thinking of trials you've been through, it's like, God, you're, you're, you're crazy. How, how do I think like that? And if I can't think like that, how do I endure? And then he says right to us, listen, ask me. Ask me how to live like this. So we're invited to ask him for the wisdom to know how to think when we undergo trials. For wisdom to understand his word as we believe it. When, we are, when you and I are beseeching God for wisdom, for answers... We're begging the one who tells us, I give to all generously without reproach. 
I'm not upset to have to give out what I have for you to be okay. I love to do that. I give generously to those who come to me. He promises to give us wisdom to understand. And later on in chapter 4, verse 3, he's going to pick this up again. Because he knows that there's a difference between asking for the wisdom to understand our trials and what we're going through. And asking for wisdom because we're angry at him because we wanted something else and we want more. We must ask for wisdom though in faith with no doubting. You see what, you see what the word always does? Right? When the word comes to us as law, as you should do this, do you see what it's doing? It's pushing us to full dependence. Don't, don't doubt when you ask or, or you won't receive it. Well, Lord, how, how do I not doubt? All the Bible does is push us to be on our knees. That, that's what the Bible's doing. You can, I, you and I cannot do this. This, this isn't like you just make a decision to count something all joy. It, our, our, our natures don't work that way. Even as believers, we, we, we don't work that way. If I say it, you'll do it. We all ought to know that that's not the case, especially if you have kids. What, what parent were we just talking this morning with, with somebody after church? You honestly think that I, my kids won't do blank, blank, and blank because I'll tell them they're not allowed. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, I wish, man, I wish it was that easy. Don't do that. Oh, okay, I won't. No, don't do that. Apparently sounds to a kid like you should do that. So that's fun. But we have to ask for wisdom and faith with no doubting because here's why the one who doubts is like a wave for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, the doubting person is unstable in verse eight. The doubting person, that something is wrong back here, right? In the foundation of that person that is causing them to doubt in the way the scripture is speaking of here. That person has not yet become steadfast. So they're not doing, obviously, what we're told to do in these first verses. That's why they're doubting. So we have to go all the way back to the beginning, to the center, the core of who we are. When we are driven and tossed by the wind... Rather than steadfast, our asking of God becomes fixated on our desires for this world rather than on our hope for His world. We are unstable and tossed all over the place when we don't have the steadfastness that comes from ever-increasing faith. Instability comes from not believing the promises of God. That makes us ask amiss. So he's not saying you need to add some virtue onto yourself. He's saying you need to get to the center of who you are, to where faith resides, and ask from there. Get your eyes off of the world. The harder we fight to calm ourselves and navigate and endure, apart from what can only be gained by faith, the more unstable and weak we actually become. Doubting leads us into places where we don't just question the plan of God, we question his goodness. Does he really love me? Is he good? And the next verses reveal that our mind will be tempted by our desires to question the goodness of God, which leads us to sin and to doubt. In verse 9, let the lowly brother boast 
in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So you see what, how he's shaping the Christian mind. Don't think when you hear that, that your faith is going to be refined by testing, that God is doing something to you. Because you would say, can I believe that you're good when it seems like you're out to make me defect? The Bible is saying, look, God's not making you go through these things. right? He's going to tell us why we go through what we go through. But God isn't out to get us. He isn't out to make us quit believing. And that's how we start to think. Because we judge the goodness of God based on the circumstances of our lives, right? That's what he's trying to pull us away from. Don't question the goodness of God based on how well your life is or is not going. That's not what's happening. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God or tested here. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Period. That's doctrine. Right? Can God do evil? No. God can't even be tempted to do evil. It's not possible. And he himself tempts no one. That, that's not what God is doing. He's not doing that. He's not behind that. But each person is tempted when the devil gets a hold of him. No, 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 no. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Notice how God seeks to take our eyes off of the present off of ourselves, we are not ever promised as believers that if we look at our circumstances and how life is going and how big the bank account is or how leveraged the portfolio is or how successful and liked and prosperous we are, that then we'll have faith and we'll have hope. And we should, that our faith will actually increase if everything's good. We're never told that. And our spiritual maturity will improve by looking at our station in this life. Many in this congregation, James is writing to endured circumstances and lives that were difficult. Many of them were not financially secure and didn't live the lives of perceived stability and control that usually result from having a lot of money. Again, it's, 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 uh, that, that has its own detrimental effect on us, right? To, to, And rather than promising a change of circumstances, James encourages them to look with hope in faith towards the future and what the promise says. That's what he's after in verse 9. Both the poor and the rich brother, notice this, are to fix their eyes on the promised future. The poor to know there's relief. The rich to have perspective. The lowly brother is actually currently exalted spiritually. Right. While the one at ease here, the rich is actually currently in a state of humiliation spiritually when his eyes are not fixed on the promise as the means of his 
life and hope. James isn't teaching that if you're rich, you're automatically sinning and God is against you. He's speaking into the situation in his audience of the poorer children of God who could be tempted to look at those that have it better and wonder why God isn't doing the same for them. Right? And he is admonishing the rich in the congregation who are trusting in their wealth as either proof of God's blessing or a proof of their abilities and control, ability to control. This is why the scripture attaches so many warnings to wealth or pursuing wealth. There's something about being able to get what you want when you want it or hedge ourselves in that uniquely threatens our faith. If you have that bank account to always fall back on or a portfolio that no matter how bad things get, you can fall back on that. That is dangerous for faith. So what should I do? Should I liquidate all my assets? No, 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 no. Beloved, we need perspective, whether we are poor or rich, because this is all temporary. It's not really real. Right. God evaluates us based on the fixed future of the promise. Those that will quickly pass away here are not in an exalted state, but a humiliated one. This is how certain God's promised future is. In fact, it's in the midst of his own pursuits that the rich man will fade away in verse 11 or the rich woman. The rich one is driven by a desire for gain in this world, which rather than making that one fixed and stable, actually exposes that one to the fallenness of the world in its own unique way. In verse 12, the blessed man is simply the one who remains steadfast under trial. That's the blessed person. Rather than one who seeks to become stable by pursuing the various desires of the heart. Our desires are why we doubt God. Our desires are why we don't grow in our faith. Our desires are why we don't remain steadfast under trial. And what wealth has this unique, unfortunate ability to do is increase our desires and lessen our faith. The reason the steadfast one is blessed is the crown of life. That God has promised that fixes it in the future to those who love him. Faith is really love for God because of his promises. Love for God is not shown in words or sentiment, but in steadfastness that desires the crown of life. It's, it's not that desire is bad. It's that we are bad and so our desires are corrupted. There is a wonderful thing to desire, and it's the crown of life that can't be obtained in this world. And if we try to get it from this world, we'll lose our faith. His love for us is not something we're only meant to know in the future either. It's precisely what holds us together in the here and now. God is speaking over us. I love you. My actions in your life are because I love you. I'm trying to get you home to me. It's a proven love from the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you know God loves you. Right? You don't look inside for the answer to that. You don't look to feel something to know that He loves you. You look to the cross when you wonder if God loves you. That's fixed in history. It's a fixed point for you and me today. 
I always have one place, one time, one event to look back to, to know whether or not God loves me and will keep his promises to me. I look to the cross. I never look anywhere else. I don't look to what's good and bad in my life to know whether or not he loves me, as though good is a proof that he does, bad could be evidence that he doesn't. I look to the cross. The crown of life is there for sinners because of the cross. So I never take my eyes off of this. There's no way to the crown without the cross of trials in this life. We are not above our master. So realize that the things we face, even the worst things, they're not evidence of God's apathy or his lack of love for us, but of his desire to make sure we obtain the crown of life that he's promised to us. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. We have to trust this. I'm saying that out loud to convince myself also. God knows what He's doing. I don't. I very rarely know what God is doing apart from what He's revealed in His Word, right? But He knows what He's doing. If this is the way, then this is the way. Realize that the things we face, again, even the worst things, are not evidence of His apathy or His lack of love for us, but of His desire to make sure We obtain the crown of life that He's promised to those who love Him, that is, have faith in Him. And when we want to question His goodness in this, in that plan, in that design, it's not because God is messing up. It's because we lack the wisdom to understand it. And so everything I need, I have to go to God for it. So don't let that relationship get damaged. Don't let your picture of God get tainted by suffering. Because you're going to need Him the more that you suffer. And the more you endure trials. Beloved, we don't have the ability to fully understand the ways of God in the why questions of our lives. And the key to understanding is not knowing the reason for all that we face. That That's not how. If that is how, that's what would have happened for Job. And Job never got his questions answered. The key to understanding is knowing the Father who has promised us eternity. Doubt is not simply a matter of Doubt is wrong, you know, like a moral thing. Doubt is so dangerous because if we're doubting the goodness of our Father when trials come, we'll eventually be destroyed by our doubt. In James' teaching, he shows us right where doubt goes. Look here at verses 13 through 15. Where does sin come from? Why do I struggle so much to become steadfast in faith? Because of my desires. My desires, my heart is an idol factory. That's my problem. It's not the goodness or the character of God that's in question. It's my wayward, wicked, always thirsty for things other than God heart. And my desires, they give birth to sin when they're conceived in me. And sin leads to death, not the crown of life. It is imperative that we don't start to blame God for our sin or to think our trials are His scheme again to tempt us out of the faith. God is not doing this to you. I guess God just really hates me. He's really against me. He's really... No, 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 no. He doesn't change. Our desires mess us up. They make us fools and we need wisdom. Temptation is a tool of the evil one, to whom, by the way, I'm giving the raw material to work with. Satan knows what works with me. 
And so that's what he works with. I give him what he tempts me with. Right? He's not going to tempt me with gambling. I don't, I'm bringing that up as an example to make the point. Like I don't, that's not something I struggle with because I, I figure you need to be really rich to enjoy gambling. Right? I mean, you need to be loaded to enjoy, like I lost 20 grand last night. Ooh. Lost 20 grand. There's, I can tell you there's a, in Brawley. No, we don't have time. Never mind. I'm, 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 let me, let me finish here. Some very rich folks in Brawley and that gambling is like fun. And I, I don't, I don't mean like I'm pious and I, I just like, I, it's, that sin does, or gambling isn't automatically a sin. I'm really messing up here. I've really gone off the rails. I'm simply saying he's going to work with what he knows will work with you. The, the problem of me is me. It's in here. All that is necessary for me to sin is my own desires. Satan capitalizes on what we give him. God isn't trying. God is not the one trying to make us defect. That's what the text is saying. God is not the one trying to make you stop believing in him. I'm going to test this person to make sure they're the real deal. We're not the real deal. He's the real deal. God is trying to make me steadfast so that I don't. Temptation to sin, to defect, to doubt, it's coming from the evil one who is working with my desires. It's not coming from our Father. What is God actually like then? That's what James says. What is God actually like? What do I need to know about Him and believe about Him to remain steadfast? Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The devil is lying to us. Our own desires, beloved, are lying to us. Every good thing in my life, that's the work of God. Every perfect thing in my life, that's the work of God in me. That's what he's responsible for. That's what he says. That's what he owns is what he's doing. He's the father of lights, meaning there's no darkness with him, including the desire or the scheme to tempt me to do evil or to defect. God is not doing this. God is always good, always faithful, always working for my good, according to Romans 8. And he doesn't change, not in his character or in his promises. Notice there's no variation or shadow due to change in God. In other words, there's not even a hint of God ever doing anyone wrong. Ever. God doesn't change, nor does God operate in a way that would cast a shadow over us. Because God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. Do not believe yourself when you begin to tell you that He might not be good. Talk to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Beloved, look to the cross where all His promises concerning us were accomplished once and for all. Outside of me. I have nothing to do with Him. God just gives them to me. We never move beyond the cross of Christ for our confidence. Not ever. So tonight, does he love me? Are my sins really forgiven? Will he always want to keep his promises to me? Is he good? Can I trust him? Will he be there for me? Beloved, the answers are not in the moment. The answers are not in our circumstances or in the absence of trials. Our answers are forever fixed in that place where for the long dark night, it was not well with the soul of our Savior so that it would always be well with ours. Look to Christ. He is all, beloved. 
And look at where James goes at this point. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's what God did. That's what God's responsible for. God is the source and reason for my faith in the first place. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we need the wisdom to understand. That's how we were created in Christ. So is he going to go back on his own choice for us? Never. Never. Beloved, he doesn't invest the life of his son in us and create faith in us to believe and apply all the work of Jesus to us and then say, now, good luck. I'm going to test you until you fail. And it was all for nothing. Right. That doesn't even make sense. And we need wisdom. We need wisdom to know how to think right, rightly. He created us new in him the same way he created Adam, same way Lazarus was pulled from the grave, the same way the dry bones in Ezekiel came to life by his perfect word, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Our salvation is also evidence of the new creation invading the old. It starts with redeemed sinners. It ends in a new heavens and a new earth. That's what he's doing in us. That's why our lives go the directions they do. We don't need different circumstances. We need to hold on to his hand by just believing his word. And when we can't, beloved, you need to know this. He doesn't shove us away. When we are languishing out there, he says, you know me. You know what I'm like. Come to me and ask for what you need. All he is doing is teaching us to depend on him for everything, including the understanding that keeps us from making shipwreck of our faith. It's not going to be God that crashes the ship of our faith. If the ship of our faith crashes, it's because we don't believe the truth. And so we need wisdom from above to endure, to believe. We need to know how to endure trials of various kinds so that we'll remain steadfast and sure in our faith in the salvation of our God. This is true for all the various trials we might face. All the mess we sometimes live in, God is there too. But by His Word, He holds us steadfast and sure while the billows roll. We are fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. That, believer, is where you are tonight. You're grounded firm and deep by the hands of God. All this life is, is learning by God's wisdom to believe that's the case, and you will be fine. And when you know you're not, go to him. He has invited you to come. All right? When you can't hold on, you don't need a lesson in holding on tighter. You need to know that he is not going to let you.